0: John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, says, And after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the changers money and overthrew the tables and said unto them, that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And as his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. But then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple... And in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty-six years has this temple been in building, and will thou raise it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and notice they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now... When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men. And indeed, not that any should testify, had no need that anybody should testify of man, for he knew <clears throat> what was in man, and he knows what's in you and I this morning, speaking here of his omniscience, his ability to know each of us. I think that, and yet I look at him going down to Capernaum with his mother and with his brethren and with his disciples, and he knows what's in them. And yet he's drawing them along with him. He knows what's in us. That for me as a believer is both sobering and encouraging. It's very sobering that he knows what shouldn't be there that's in there. Uh, but he also knows the things that have changed because of his faithfulness and his work. And, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that I can't fool him. What's encouraging is I realize nobody can fool him. You look around the world today at the movers and shakers and the presidents of multinational corporations, who think that they're smarter than all the rest of us, and they can determine how we should live because they should control the world. Jesus knows who the puppet masters are. He knows what's in them, too. And nothing is taking him by surprise. And he's coming, and I'm ready. And he knows what's in man, and he knows what's in all of them, scattered around this world as well as you and I. And yet still he chooses human instruments. You know, as His mother goes with him, his disciples, it's called a polysyndeton, and his mother, and his brethren, and his disciples, wherever the and is, it adds an extra emphasis to each category that's being spoken of, and he takes them from the area of Nazareth, he was at Cana, they've been living in Nazareth, down to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and it's a major thoroughfare from Syria, from Babylon to the Via Mares, over to the way of the sea, and the way of the kings, and the trade route down to Jerusalem and to Egypt. So Jesus sets up house there. What it indicates is that he moves there. He moves his spiritual headquarters, his physical headquarters there to Capernaum, uh, where he will that will be the base for his ministry in Galilee. It's about an 18-mile Uh, journey northeast from Cana to Capernaum. It's a one day. If you push it, make it one day. And uh, he goes there. There's no mention of Joseph in Cana of Galilee or here. So most scholars who feel Joseph has passed off the scene by this time. And sometimes I wonder, you know, when he was 12 years old and Joseph and Mary went back and found them At the temple in Jerusalem, and he said to them, Didn't you know I had to be busy about my father's business? You know, sometimes I wonder, you know, Joseph knew, the angel came to him and said, You know, don't, you know, doubt to take Mary to be thy wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. He's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. You're going to call his name Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. Angel comes to him in a dream and says, Go on down to Egypt and so forth. Then another dream, come back, you know. The, the interesting thing is Joseph knows. So imagine that stewardship. You know, Mary, it's her born son. Joseph, uh, he's the stepfather, as it were. <clears throat> and imagine what it was like for him to sit alone with Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and say, you've given me this stewardship, Lord, oh, Lord, this is more than I can handle, you know. You're his father. I, I know he's just on loan to me, but imagine the, the communion and the fellowship Joseph probably had with Jehovah, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, over this one that was born that was going to sit on the throne of his father David forever. And perhaps not long after that incident when he was 12, because when a Jewish boy, or when they're bar mitzvahed, they stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm no longer accountable now to my earthly father, but I'm accountable to you. And the father would say, Lord, this son no longer now is accountable to me, but he's a man, he's accountable to you. And sometimes I wonder how long after that process, Joseph, in his communion with God, may have said, I understand that we're changing, the baton's being passed here. Um, I'm no longer necessary I'm thankful, you know, now he's going to be your son, because we see him in this cleansing of the temple as the son of God. As chapter 1 ended, he said to Nathanael, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe you're going to see the greater things than these. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. But now he steps into public ministry as the son of God. He speaks of his father's house. And it's fitting that his public ministry should begin in Jerusalem in the temple. And it will end in Jerusalem as well a number of years after this. Um, This is the first time he cleanses the temple. He cleanses it again in Matthew 21, at the beginning and end of his ministry, he cleanses the temple. And of course here he makes this this whip, this scourge of ropes, and drives them out, which he doesn't do the second time. <clears throat> but the stage is set because it's the Passover. John says the, the Jews, because he's writing to the church, largely Gentile, 90 AD, is the time of the Jews Passover was come, So Jesus went up to, from Capernaum to Jerusalem, Capernaum 600 feet below sea level, Jerusalem 2,424 feet above sea level, so it's at least a 3,000 mile elevation change. Now for the Jews, wherever you came from you went up to Jerusalem, even if you came from a higher place, because Jerusalem had spiritual significance, you always went up to Jerusalem, when you left Jerusalem, even if you went higher, you went down from Jerusalem. That's just the way it was. But this literally is, is going uphill all the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is fulfilling the law. He didn't break the law in any sense, in any way. And he is a Jewish male. And the Jewish males from 12 on up were required three times a year, Deuteronomy 16, 16 to go up to Jerusalem. And he's going up, as he had many times before. He's going up on the Passover, and the three mandatory feasts were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And as he's going up to Passover, John the Baptist had said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Remarkably, John builds his gospel Largely around three Passovers, the one mentioned here, the one mentioned in s- chapter 6, verse 4, and the one mentioned in chapter 12, verse 1, and 1155. So so he's the Passover lamb. He's coming up to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Even today when they celebrate the Passover... There is a time of cleansing. Even today, the father of the house amongst Orthodox Jews will go through the entire house looking for leaven because leaven represents that which putrefies, that which is contagious, that which spreads. So even today, symbolically, the father will go through the house and look for leaven, and this whole feast, which they called the Feast of Passover, lasted eight days. It was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of first fruits, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread began at the Passover dinner. When they ate the Passover dinner, it was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the father, before the Passover, would go through the house, and still will today, and look for leaven, anything that putrefies, anything that spreads, and and symbolically clean the leaven. And here is Jesus going up to his father's house, and he's going to clean the leaven out of the house before the Passover comes. Now, it's an interesting picture as we look at this. The Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, which is lunar in the Jewish calendar related to the full moon. It always falls in the end of March or the beginning of April. Most scholars believe this is April 7th, 30 A.D., specifically because they say it's 46 years after Herod began to renovate the temple, which would bring it out to that year. And the multitudes would swell in Jerusalem from a population, they, they estimate 100 to 200,000, depending on you read, to at least 250,000 males, men. And then they say when you added children and wives, you were up between two and three million people. So Jerusalem was a madhouse. It was packed at this point in time as they went up there to celebrate the Passover. And as they went up, it says, Jesus goes into the temple courts and he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of the money. So he finds them, th- there's a problem here, it's, t- two, it's twofold. First of all, there's no prohibition where those that are selling animals are changing money. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 24 to 25, 26 tell us that if you traveled from a far country to come up to one of the mandatory feasts, you wouldn't want to try to bring an ox from Italy to Jerusalem to sacrifice. So it said you would sell the animal there and bring that money in your hand, and then when you got to Jerusalem, you could buy an ox there, or you could buy a lamb there, or you could buy instead of trying to travel with the animal. So initially, God institutes this as a courtesy for worshipers, those that are coming from far distant places, that they come to Jerusalem and they could find a place there to purchase animals for sacrifice. The money changers were there for two reasons. Every Jew, every Jewish male, 20 years old and upward, once a year had to pay the temple tax. That had to be paid in the half shekel, which was a silver Jewish coin. They couldn't pay it in Roman coinage or Greek coinage, anything that had an image on it and so forth, uh, they considered a graven image. So. You would have to come to Jerusalem, whatever country you came from, and you would exchange your money there for the shekel. So you could both pay the taxes, and when you went to buy the animal, they wouldn't take foreign coinage. You had to use the temple uh, shekel to buy the animal as well. So none of that is forbidden. What is wrong here is, first of all, Jesus finds them, it says, in the temple the Heron, which is the temple precincts. It would include the temple precincts were first the building itself, the temple, the sanctuary. Then you had three divisions, four courts. The first division was the court of the priests. Then moving eastward, you had the court of Israel, which divided between the court of men, and then most east, the court of women. And then outside of the court of the women, you had the court of the Gentiles, which was huge. The whole complex was 19 acres, and it was set up, God's intention, so that Gentiles, he saw you and I, so that Gentiles could come and discover the true and living God. It was to be a place of worship. You know, a house of prayer. It was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles could come and learn about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Jews and the religious system were supposed to be a priesthood to them, to tell them the truth. But by this time, the leaven of commercialism, the leaven that needed to be cleaned out, had spread into the religious leadership... They called this the bazaars of Annas, the critics, the ones who couldn't stand it. Annas was the official high priest recognized by the Jews. Caiaphas was his replacement by the Romans. They would call it the, bizarre, the bazaars of Annas because you would come there and you walk into the court of the Gentiles, which is supposed to be a place for Gentiles to pray, and it is a stockyard. It's crowded with oxen and sheep and manure all over and tables of money changers and tables with doves and it's a circus with all this noise bidding on animals, yelling at each other all of this around the court of women, the court of men and the court of the priest and the sanctuary and Jesus had been there many times at the Passover from the time he was 12 and he never interrupted, he never did anything But this is the inauguration of his public ministry. This is the inauguration now where he is going to cleanse his father's house. And as the heir, he has the right to do that. He identifies this as my father's house, which means here he is the son of God, not just the son of man. And he sees what is going on. People would come from foreign lands, and they would come up to Jerusalem, and they would want to buy a lamb to sacrifice for Passover, or an oxen for sacrifice, doves if they were poor. And the priests wouldn't take the foreign money. So the first thing they had to do is go to the money changer and exchange their foreign money for the local money that could be used in the temple. And And Josephus tells us they would have to pay the equivalent wage of two full hours of a day's labor to exchange their money. So imagine what that might be for you today, how much money that would be to exchange money. And human beings haven't changed, by the way. Any of you who have traveled internationally, I have you go to another country and you decide to, to you know change in 100 bucks so you have money to spend locally and they give you this wheelbarrow full of money with funny pictures on it and you don't know whether they just give you 50 cents or you know you, you know the people are still the same everywhere so you know they would take advantage of the people coming in to exchange their money and then when they paid an exorbitant fee to exchange their money and that money went then you know the portion of it went to the priest Then they would go to the animals to buy the animal, and they would pay almost double what they would have paid in their own land for a lamb. So they were getting ripped over the the, the coals. They were being taken advantage of, not only that, the inspectors of the priest who inspected the animals. Rabbinic writings tell us they had to be on particular farms that the priest oversaw for 18 months, for a year and a half. And in that 18 months, they learned how to inspect animals and tell the difference between a clean and an unclean animal to recognize a spot or a blemish. Not only that, supposedly they learned how to recognize an animal that didn't have a spot or a blemish but would have one by the time they matured and even though they looked clean they were really unclean they could pronounce that so you imagine what they're doing to anybody local who tries to bring their own animal for sacrifice they're saying even if it no spot, oh no this animal is going to you know the, the, this the 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 spot is inherent you know whatever it might be so they're ripping everybody off then they had the guts In the middle of all that, they had the sanctuary, the court of the priest. Jesus never went there. He wasn't a priest. He never intruded. The court of Israel. And then you had the court of women. In the court of women, there was four buildings in there. One of them was where you would dialogue with the priest. One of them is where they found Jesus at 12 years old. Um, One of them had wood for the altar. One of them had salt to throw in the temple courts like you might need tomorrow morning uh, when it was icy. And uh, Jesus said, when salt has lost its salt, it's not good for anything to, but to be thrown out and trodden under the foot of men. They understood that well. And then the last building in the corner of the court of women, these four rooms, was for those who had dedicated themselves that were fasting uh, to the Lord. So all of that is surrounded by like a three-foot wall the court of women in these courts. And on that wall, and they discovered this one plaque in 1870, they excavated it, and this was written in Greek, but this was written in, they had Greek, Hebrew, and Latin uh, balusters there that said this, no foreigner shall enter within the balustrade of the temple or within the precinct. Whosoever shall be caught shall be responsible for his own death, that will follow in consequence of his trespassing. So no foreigner, no Gentile was allowed to step beyond that point. And if they did, it was a death sentence. And the Romans allowed the Jews to exercise that one. That was one of the ones they were allowed to exercise. So you just imagine what Jesus hates here. Is he sees he's not against the selling of animals. He's against the fact that people were getting ripped off. He's not against the fact that there's money changers. That had to happen. He's against the hypocrisy that is making the approach to God something that's not palatable for people with baloney meters. You know, human beings are coming in that are broken, that are longing for the true and living God, and they're running into this situation they know is hypocrisy. You know, today in the church, Jesus hasn't changed. If we're commercializing the church, or or, or trying to make the church cool, you know, to the point where we're commercializing it, Jesus is the same today. He can't stand when the pathway to God, you know, in his father's house, the house of God, we should be able to come and find the God of the house. And what he is overturning here is people who play with or commercialize, you know, things that are truly spiritual. Or people today that would do things in the church that would take advantage of people for money, that would, you know, beat them over the head to get in their pockets. And this is not the heart of God. So when Jesus sees all this going on, he says he picks up a few cords. They're easy to find when there's oxen everywhere. And he weaves them into a scourge. And then it says, and he drove them all. All there is masculine, plural. It has to relate to those selling doves. And animals, because it says, and after the all, the oxen uh, and the sheep, and it says, and those that were selling doves, those were in cages. He just told them to get them out of here. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. When he cleanses the temple a second time, he calls it, you know, a den of thieves, Matthew 21. Here, he says, this is my father's house. He enters in to cleanse it. But by the end of his public ministry, he says, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He had done his work. Here, he's cleansing it, wanting to see it be what it should be. And it says he makes this scourge of ropes. Now, please note this. Doesn't say he uses lightning, lightning doesn't say he takes a sword and cuts everybody's heads off. He takes a scourge and he drives them out, and the animals. And the smartest ones there were the oxen and sheep. They headed for the hills right away. They knew who was there because Jesus didn't do it in wrath. He didn't do it in violence or anger. He did it with authority. One carpenter from Nazareth cleansing 19 acres of nonsense himself with a rope in his hand. And the oxen and the sheep running, money changers, their tables are being overturned, scouring, trying to pick it up. And those that have doves, the doves can't leave because they're in cages. He said, carry them out of here. Get them out of here. There is an authority that's supernatural here that's recognized, and people are just fleeing as this one individual is walking through his voice, his countenance, his movement, his actions, and he's cleaning his father's house. The leaven is going out. Then, of course, when he does this, it says, Then the Jews come. You look there in verse nine, um, in verse 18. Then answered the Jews. They come to him now. So evidently the temple police go and tell the Sanhedrin. You know, right away, some of the Levites priests are there. They go tell Annas and Caiaphas, you should see what's going on out there. You know, our money's going all over the temple floor. You know, between services, I had all my grandkids in my office, and I have this big bottle of change I keep in the corner. It's too heavy for any of them to lift. And they were all doing something. I turn it upside down, start shaking it. You should have seen them. It was a scene from John chapter 2. They were diving all over the floor, pushing each other, scraping coins together, trying to, you know... You know, this is what it looked like. They're, you know, And, and they come, because it's their money, that they're getting a big piece of it, or all of it, in some of the circumstances. And they say, by what authority do you do these things? They, they, they don't question the fact that he did it. They said unto him, what sign are you going to show us, seeing that you do these things? Because they had heard about Jesus' ministry, They had sent to John the Baptist and said, Are you the one? There was anticipation. There was expectation. No, I'm not the Christ, he said. Well, are you Elijah then? No, I'm not him. I'm just a voice of one crying in a wilderness. You know, now they know Malachi in the Old Testament said this. It said, Behold, I will send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me. Speaking of John the Baptist And then the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of his covenant, who you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord, and who may be able to abide the day of his coming, and so forth. So there was an expectation. So they don't say to him, you know, this shouldn't happen. they say, what sign can you show us that you have the authority to do this? And Jesus says to them in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now he changes something here. Jesus comes to the temple. He finds the money changers selling the temple. He begins to drive them out of the temple. It's heron in those places, the word temple, which means the entire temple precinct, the whole 19 acres. When Jesus says destroy this temple, he says naos, Destroy the holy place, the holy of holies, because he was where God, it was Ichabod there in the physical. Josephus says there wasn't even, uh, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there, none of those things. It, it, It was the building, certainly, it was representative, but the holy of holies was walking in the midst, cleansing the temple. All of that looked forward to the Messiah, the one who would fulfill every lamb that was sacrificed. Now the Lamb of God is there on the Passover. And he says to them, destroy this naos, this holy place. And in three days I'll raise it up. Look, there it says when he he cleansed the temple, figure these disciples are six guys, fishermen so far, that start to follow him. His mom, his brothers are there. We don't know if they came to Jerusalem as well. They went with them to Capernaum. But the disciples see the miracle at Cana, and they think, right on. It's starting. Look who our look who our master is, and look who we're following. You know, he's a guy who can turn water into wine. This is the kind of guy you want to follow. Some of you for the wrong reason, but you know they're excited. So when they get to Jerusalem, they must be thinking, "Wait, do you see what he's going to do here?" The first thing he does is overturn the tables of the money changers. He's driving, and they must be thinking, "What do we get ourselves into?" You know, is there you know is there any verse that? And then they said, "Well, you know, Psalm 69 verse 9 says the zeal of 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 his house hath eaten me up and they 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 take note of that psalm 69 is a messianic psalm it's quoted seven times in the new testament and and that particular verse is quoted here about the zeal of god's house david wrote it but it was messianic eating me up and and the the greatest expression of the zeal that he has for his father's house is in verse 19 when he says destroy this temple And in three days, I'll raise it up. Because you see, he wasn't driving sinners out of the temple precincts. He knows what's in man. If he was driving sinners out, none of us would be here, and none of them would have been there. He was driving out the hypocrisy, the false presentation, the misrepresentation of a God, yes, that is completely just. Yes, there is God's wrath. But all of that is driven by God's love, by a greater force. And Jesus is saying, Here's the greatest expression of my zeal. This temple's going to be destroyed. I'm going to let you destroy it. And in three days, I'm going to raise it up. The crucifixion. And the resurrection are really the things that cleanse the things that need to be driven out of you and I. They say, this temple's been in building for 46 years, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Heard the Great had started 20 years, 20 B.C., to renovate Zerubbabel's you know, the temple there in Ezra and so forth. And he had broadened it. It only took him a year and a half to actually make the building of the sanctuary itself. So for over 37 years, he's been broadening the the whole precinct, putting the western wall, the walls that were there. He's been doing that. So when they say 46 years, this has been in building, it's a verb in the process of, um, they looking at the whole thing as an undertaking. It wasn't completed till 63, 64 A.D., and in 67 to 70 A.D., the, the legion, Roman legions surround the city and start that war. By 70 A.D., the temple is leveled. There's nothing left. So it's not completed till 64 to 66 A.D., in there, and then within two years, the, the legions are there, and the whole thing is destroyed. It's leveled. It was, in fact, torn down. But he's speaking of the temple of his body. Josephus tells us that there were eighteen thousand workmen working on this temple. So, in a sense, they're startled when they hear him say this: tear down this temple, this. Holy place. And in three days I'll raise it up again. Forty-six years the temple has been in the building process. You're going to raise it up in three days? John tells us, But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and notice and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said it was related to the scripture the different places in scripture that that made reference to look towards his resurrection so first thing they do is they interpret what he's doing as the zeal of my father's house has eaten me up they go to psalm 69 then he says we we didn't have a text, really, until after the resurrection. And John will tell us that several times. After he was risen, then he says we understood and we believed the scripture. There's a lot going on around you and I in the world today that tells us we can believe the scripture, by the way. It's happening. It's prophecy that's turned into reality. And John said, when prophecy turned into reality in our day, then we believed what the word said we believed what he had said what an interesting picture it brings before us and it says now when he was in jerusalem at the passover in the feast day notice this many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Now, verse 23, 24, interesting. It says, on that feast day, the Passover, many believed in his name. And then in verse 24, it uses the same word where it says commit in the King James. But Jesus did not believe in them. They believed in him. He did not believe in them because he knew all men. And he didn't need that anybody should testify about man to him because he knew what was in man. And he's going to prove that next in his encounter with Nicodemus. You know, they believed in him, not a saving faith. They believed this might be the Messiah. Look at the miracles that are taking place. But they're, they're, that level of faith was based on miracles, which is never a saving faith. The Jews saw all the miracles coming out of Egypt. Nicodemus came to him and said, Master, we know you're sent from God because of the signs that miracles we see you do. Nobody could do this unless they were sent from God. So he believed as well because of the miracles. But Jesus said, A man can't see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. He's gonna take John's gonna take us there. He said he's written these things that we might believe in Jesus, the Son of God and that believing we might have life in his name. He said there's a lot of other things that could have been written, miracles and so forth. He said if they were all written, then you couldn't fill the books, the libraries of the world. But these specific seven particular signs that he writes of, they speak, they have a message. Here's the interesting thing, you go through all four Gospels, you're going to find 36 miracles. In all four Gospels, 36 miracles. His ministry is three years. So that averages out to one miracle a month. How many hundred were happening a month? John doesn't tell us anything about the miracles in Jerusalem during this Passover week. How many times after this did he go into the temple? The second cleansing, it says the blind and the lame come to him, and he heals them there in the temple precincts. How many came? What was happening here? But the interesting thing is it says... It says, he, you know, he, they committed themselves to him. He didn't commit himself to them. They believed in him. He didn't believe in them. He understands man. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. He knew what Adam would do. He came to, Andrew brings his brother Simon. He said, oh, Simon, your name's going to be Cephas. He sees what's in him and describes it. He sees Nathaniel, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He looks at Nicodemus and says, are you the teacher in Israel? He knew who he was and didn't understand. You don't understand these things? He says of Judas, have not I chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? You know, you go through. He knew what was in man. He knows what's in me here today, undoubtedly. And he knows what needs to be overturned in this temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, 6, 19, 2 Corinthians six, sixteen. You know, the Holy Spirit Christ dwells in me. This is where he temples now, as it were. And only he can overturn the things that really need to be overturned. Now look, he does that work in me, not with a whip in his hand, because all of that was done on the cross. The scripture says he's going to continue the good work he's begun in me until that day. I'm being conformed to his image. My journey is not just, my destination is not just a place. My destination is also an image. And he's committed to take this miserable old sinner, save me by his work on the cross, the temple that was destroyed and raised again, and then begin a work in me that he continues hour after hour, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. Peter would become that rock. John, one of the sons of thunder, wanting to burn up cities, would become the apostle of love. He's willing to work in our lives. We're headed into 2022. What tables need to be overturned in your life and in my life? And look, Take note of this too. Because Pharisees love to read this as well. Then they want to make their whip and whip people. This is not written so you and I can whip people, okay? You ain't Jesus, so don't come around whipping me. But take the scourge to your own life. Take the scourge to your own Savior and say, Lord, would you drive out of my life? what I'm inclined to hold on to that shouldn't be there. Lord, would you do this work in me? There is a physical temple there in Jerusalem. There's a historic scene. There is something that moves Christ in a way that we rarely see him in the Gospels. There is a historical reality to that, but there is a spiritual significance to it that relates to us today. First of all, the church around the world, pastors, leaders, people should take note of this because he doesn't want anything phony in the church. He wants people to be able to come in here and not get hit with, this is Triple Tide Sunday, dig deep, here's the bucket, fill it up, or we're not preaching until you give money. People run into that stuff, and they do it. You know, I'm thinking, come on, I'm born again. I'm not born yesterday. Why, you know. But not, you know. Before I was saved, taking LSD, I wouldn't have done that. Am I supposed to be dumber now? You know, you know. But but you run into this stuff in the church, this marketing, and churches go to the Madison Avenue people to learn how to market, to take advantage of people, to get the money out of their pockets, to put a sideshow on, you know, an entertainment center. You know, it's supposed to be a place the house of God, then and now, where people can come with their brokenness, with their longing, where the unbeliever can come saying, is anything here? The world around me is fallen apart. There ain't nothing left to hold on to. Could this possibly be real? And when they walked in the court of Gentiles with the manure and the stink and the sound and all that, that wasn't what they encountered at all. And that's what angered the Lord because there was something standing in the way of people genuinely coming to a loving God who had provided a Savior. Read through Matthew 23, it says it very clearly there. So there was a spiritual significance to the historical reality here that no, never changes. I'm the Lord, I change not. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's an application, certainly, in our own church. Uh, there's an application for us, most importantly, as individuals in our lives. What would the Lord drive out? is it, not for the Pharisees to take up the rope and whip people. That's not why this is in the Bible. What would he drive out of our lives? What we, and if you're saying nothing, I'll tell you, it's pride that he would drive out of your life. You know, <laughs> this, you, that's simple then, that diagnosis. But what is it in, in your life? And I'm not concerned about yours. I'm concerned about mine. There are many things in my life that are not yet Christ-like. And you can read every book on the subject. you can listen to every tape, you can go to every counselor, but there's only one that has the right scourge in his hand. And he is so committed to cleansing, that he will allow himself to be torn down and raised again on the third day. There's where the power is. There's where the work is accomplished. It is solely Jesus Christ that cleanses. Solely Jesus Christ that cleanses. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Let's stand. Let's pray together. Lord, we look at this scene and and certainly there is, Lord, a zeal, a, a burning here in your nature, Lord, as we see what passion, Lord, and authority you move forward in, Lord. And we find ourselves in that scene, Lord, as certainly those who don't want to be turned away by hypocrisy and insanity, Lord. We see your heart, towards the lost and your actions, Lord. And you saw us that day, long ago, in the court of the Gentiles. You saw us. And, Lord, you made sure the way was opened. And, again, in your greater zeal, you allowed yourself to be torn down and raised on the third day. Lord, now find, Lord, yourselves at home in our hearts, Lord. I ask, and we all ask, Lord, we grow in grace and the knowledge of you, our Lord and Savior, as you continue the good work that you've begun in us, that you're going to continue it unto that day. Lord, we pray that you would, you, Lord Jesus, would you, you would drive out the things in our lives that need to be turned over, Lord, that are still not Christ-like as you're cleansing us, Lord, as individuals. Lord, the the place of your dwelling now. And, Lord, we put all of this before you. Lord, we love you. We, We watch you, Lord. Your word brings us to our hearts and to our minds. And, Lord, we thank you for these things, Lord. Let us enter into, Lord, a wonderful year of cleansing, we pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.